Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. The first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while. So now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the fifth episode of our second year. It premiered in December of 2010, and it's called Strange Acquaintance. Drive across the Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. Perhaps we blackmailed them. Were it only so. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Arms Up Top. This is Worm Burner behind me now, and today's episode is called Strange Acquaintance. We're going to hear four stories uh, live on our stages in New York and Los Angeles. On the topics of connections that people made that uh, turned a little surprising or uh, creepy or creepier, let's start with Mr. Rob Delaney, hilarious stand-up, hilarious tweeter. You should follow him at at Rob Delaney. And here he is at the show in L.A. with a story that we call Cripple Dick. Eight years ago, I was in jail in a wheelchair, covered in my own blood, and uh, I was just in a hospital gown, so I was naked underneath that. Both my arms were broken very badly. This one was a compound fracture, and this wrist has since been rebuilt. 
I was in leg stabilizers, which are like super enforced sausage casings that they put around your legs. They're like really tight socks with metal reinforcement so you can't bend your knees because my knees had been ripped open as well and the bones of them were sticking out through the skin part. And uh, they would wheel me around in jail and since my arms didn't work and couldn't prevent me from falling out of the chair, nor could I bend my legs so that you know I could not fall out of the wheelchair, what would happen with my super robotically straightened legs and my arms that didn't work is I would just occasionally slide out of the wheelchair and fall down onto the floor in jail and the gown would come up <laughs> in jail exposing my penis and my testicles and even my little butthole to everybody in jail. And I don't know if any of you have been to jail in a crowd this big, I'm sure a bunch of you have, you know that your penis and that your butthole are for just you. You don't share them when you're there. And so they would just, they'd be like, oh, once again, and they'd lift me up and put me back in the chair. And then I'd be like, don't go too far because I'm enjoying doing this all the time. Anyway, I was there because I had driven a car, not my car, uh, but a car into the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power really fast. Uh, I had drank a lot and went into a blackout and went to sleep on a friend's floor just so to get it out of the way. This was the last time I ever drank or did drugs. I went to sleep on my friend's floor and then I woke up, said legally, technically, and, uh, but not consciously, and then was like, time for a drive. And I drove into the DWP because fuck them. And uh, so after that, uh, the cops, like you were supposed to be in jail for a while, but the cops were like, go away. And so they drove me home and they dropped me off at home and I went and I just like laid face down on my bed like this for like 12 hours and just thought about things and then I had to pee. So I got up to go to the bathroom. I urinated via my penis and what came out of my penis was neon blue. And so I got nervous and I started to cry and hyperventilate and I went to blow my nose uh, after crying for, you know, a few minutes and uh, a bunch of bits of glass came out of my nose, like lots of broken glass just blew out into the paper. So I was like, oh, what's going on? And I tore off my hospital gown and looked in the mirror and my body was covered in stickers. So I was like, what are all of them? So to work backwards, th what they were, and I didn't know, because the hospital, who remembered that, uh, they were anchors for the heart monitors, and then the glass was, that was just windshield. And then the pee being neon blue was because they had flushed my system, I found out later, with something called methylene blue, which they do to find out if you're dying on the inside from... <laughs> hemorrhaging, which I wasn't, uh, thank goodness. <laughs> so I found all that out later. But uh, then they called me and they were like, all right, are you feeling better? I was like, no. And they're like, well, we need to come to more jail. And uh, I had a court date and I could either go to rehab or to jail. And I hadn't enjoyed jail. So I said, uh, one rehab, please. And the... The, like, the lowest of, the, like, that wasn't low, when I've told you about it before, the, this, the theme of this show being uh, at our worst, was I may have been messed up, I may have been legally required to live in a psychiatric hospital, but I still needed to masturbate, because I was still a person, and uh, people would ask me, like, how do, you, how do you masturbate? And I would be like, not forever because I don't need to now because I've shut that part of myself down but it wasn't true and so the way that I would have to masturbate uh, now first of all I'm wondering what order I should tell this in I uh, okay I'll do it this way basically uh, when you masturbate for example you're like well, I guess I'll just bang one out real quick if anybody walks in I'll be like hey and I'll deftly leap up and be like I wasn't masturbating and then they won't think that you were but <laughs> With this, I moved so slowly and I was all in braces and shit, so 
I what I would have to do is I'd have to go to an, a bathroom and none of the doors locked and I'd have to lean up against it now and my knees are are messed up but I'm out of the leg stabilizers then I would tenderly take whatever arm hadn't most recently had surgery out of its little brace and then I would just kind of very gently gently masturbate with like the fingertips the way that you would like masturbate a baby if you had to so gently and then I'd strap back up and get up and uh, go on my merry way. But the re- I did that. Now, I didn't know this, but when you're in rehab, I found this out after the fact. Because when I got there, I was like, I would like to get better and not die. So, But all people there fuck all the time. And I didn't know that. You see on the TV shows now that you can go to rehab on television, that there's inter-romances and stuff, which is a bad idea. But I remember being there, and I remember there's this, this meth head girl who was there, Uh, who was really sweet, and I remember her fondly, but she was nuts. She was there because her husband and the father of her child had found a videotape of her sucking her meth dealer's dick and was like, well, we need to work it out since we have a baby, so I guess go get healthy. (laughs) Anyway, um, so, but she was great, and we had a lot of fun. But anyway, one day she had a friend visit her in rehab, uh, and her friend, she was like, hey, Rob, it must be tough to masturbate with all your gear. And I was like, no, I don't have, no. And she's like, she points at her friend and goes, well, my friend Lisa here, she'll suck your dick. And, uh, the girl Lisa, the normal visitor, goes. <laughs> Since this is a, a podcast, I'll, I, I just meekly nodded there in a blowjob and a thumbs up to blow sucking your crippled dick fucking <laughs> smile. And uh, so, and I was like, no thanks. And anyway, I point to that moment when I was, because uh, I knew that putting my dick in her mouth would be a just methy blowjob in the wrong direction. And I point to that moment when I refused that blowjob as the moment that I really started to heal. (laughs) Thank you very much. My, it will be pleasant to have you here. I've not had any company in this dank and dismal cell for 40 long and miserable years. <clears throat> I was imprisoned by faceless people for a crime of which I had no knowledge and certainly did not commit, but what of that? In me spare time, I have been pursuing me hobby, which is writing a great prison novel. In the beginning, I wrote with an ink composed of parts of my own blood. However, this would not make an acceptable carbon, so I acquired an electric typewriter. Uh, I am proud to be able to present you with the first edition of me saga of eternal torment, profusely illustrated, titled Leather Thighs. This is Risk. That was those very odd ducks from the old Fire Sign Theater doing a little bit there. And then before that, we had a song by Hollywood Kill called At the Bottom Again, which sounds like the kind of DVD I would order from Adam and Eve. (laughs) Oh, rimming. Let's move right along. This is a track here by Chancha Via Circuito underneath me. How'd I do pronouncing that? And here comes an outrageously funny human being, one of my heroes. This is Andre Duboucher, longtime writer for Conan. A brilliant, crazy mind with a story we call The Experiment. I'm not a fuck guy. I'm a relationship guy. Um, 
I lived in New York City from about 96 through uh, 2009, actually. And uh, for almost the entirety of that time, I had a girlfriend. I was in a very long-term relationship until about uh, like spring of 2004. And then I met my current, uh, my, not my current, I met my wife. <laughs> my one and only wife. Who's not here. Um, uh, in 2005. So for about one year, for most of 2004, I did my best to, to be a fuck guy. Um, and uh, this one story occurred during that period of time. Um, it happened on uh, July 8th, 2004. And the reason I remember, <laughs> the reason I remember the date so specifically is because uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Anchorman. And that particular night, I was going to the midnight, like, you know, opening midnight show of Anchorman by myself, uh, pretty drunkenly. Uh, so I was walking down the street, kind of galumphing along with my backpack, uh, kind of tipsy. Uh, this was on about uh, Broadway and 83rd Street. Uh, I'm heading into the Lowe's uh, movie theater there. It's about like 1130. I've got about half an hour till Anchorman starts. And as I'm walking by the corner of 83rd and Broadway, I hear uh, a woman's voice say, excuse me. So I turn around and there's this very pleasant looking woman standing there. She was, I mean, I can't, I can't even really remember what she looked like at this point. Uh, pleasant, uh, you know, just not particularly attractive, but not, you know, uh, ugly enough for the story not to occur. Um, so, uh, I was just out of it. So I just, I turned, I looked at her and, and uh, she asked me point blank, she said, are you married? And I said, uh, no. And then she asked me, are you gay? I said, no. And then she said, are, uh, are you willing to listen to uh, an offer that will probably sound too good to be true? I was like, sure, you know, <laughs> why not? So, uh, to the best of my recollection, this is what her very kind of strange explanation was. She said, uh, I'm a yoga instructor. I'm from Chicago. I'm in town uh, staying at a friend's place just for tonight. Tonight only. <laughs> and I'm doing, this is what she said, I'm doing some experiments with my energy. <laughs> and I can't do this one alone. Here's what I propose. Uh, we go up to my friend's apartment, and she points to the building that we're standing right next to. You wash your cock. That was her, her choice of words. Um, I give you head until you come, and then you leave. And so I just sort of stood there nodding and listening. And then after like a, a pause, I, I literally said, well, you can understand my skepticism. And she sort of chuckled, and she was like, oh, of course. And I was like, well, yes, as you can, you know, but let's continue this conversation. Uh, I was like, so if you're serious, if we go up there, uh, there's not going to be anybody else there, right? And she's like, oh, no, of course not. I was like, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to be, you know, there's not going to be some video camera taping this. No, no, no. I'm not going to get robbed, am I? And she was like, no. So I guess in the state of mind I was in, I figured, all right, well, she has aced all of these questions. <laughs> Everything seems to be on the up and up. <laughs> let's go for it. So uh, I said, sure, uh, let's head on in. So we head on into this uh, very nice doorman apartment building. Uh, we get in the elevator. She explains to me that there's a, a few ground rules. Once we get to this apartment, I'm not going to be allowed to speak at all. I have to take my shoes off when, when we go in. And then, you know, I had to wash my cock and she'd give me a head like um, And then I would have to leave after the coming. Uh, and she must have noticed me checking my watch uh, because she asked me, well, do you have somewhere you need to be? And I was like, well, I have tickets for the midnight screening of Anchorman. <laughs> the new Will Ferrell movie. I, he's, a, I like his stuff. And she, <laughs> she, said, and she said, well, who knows? Maybe you'll still make it. And I, very, very uh, foreboding words. So... Uh, so basically, things began to unfold the way she described. We got to this uh, apartment. We went in. The apartment was dark. There were no lights turned on. Um, I had to take my shoes off. Uh, I remember one weird detail. I remember seeing a bowl of fruit 
on a coffee table, but uh, all the price tags were on the fruit. Like each individual piece of fruit had a price tag, which I guess is common. But at the time, I was I was like, oh, little details. <laughs> that will I'm gonna th that's a detail that will be in the police report. <laughs> Somehow, the fact that the fruit was individually priced. Ah, Dubiche, what are you doing? It's too late now. She aced those questions. So. She said, all right, well, you gotta go wash up. So I went to the bathroom and I, I uh, before we had, in, while we were still in the elevator, I actually explained to her, you know, I, I think I'm gonna take a, a full shower because I've had some, uh, I didn't say this to her, but I, I had had some wiping misadventures earlier in the day. <laughs> and there was just no way I was gonna feel comfortable enough for this to occur unless I really took care of every thing. <laughs> wiping misadventures. No relation to the popular kids series of books based on that same name. Um, so I went into the bathroom, I, you know, I got undressed, I took a shower, and while I'm in the shower, I'm starting to get, you know, a little, starting to plump up just a little bit with excitement at, at all of this. And I also noticed that there's a lot of uh, little containers of uh, various, you know, uh, lotions and notions and whatnot in the bathroom. And I think one of them was actually called like, pleasure gel or whatever and you know another detail <laughs> so I walk out of the bathroom stark naked uh, into this dark apartment to the left uh, is the area I had just walked through like the living room with the coffee table and everything and to the right is kind of a curving hallway leading to the bedroom so I walk down this hallway, and I enter the master bedroom, which is uh, very nice. It's got like floor-to-ceiling windows. You can see like New York City, the Upper West Side below. And at the other end of the room, you can see uh, is the woman standing there naked as well. So there we both were standing there naked. Fair to say, both of us needed to get to the gym, <laughs> but only one of us had described themselves as a yoga instructor. <laughs> that was not me. So that was another detail. I was like, oh. So, uh, so we, I, so there, there was a bed there covered in, uh, it was like a fully made bed, but the whole bed was also covered in a white sheet. It was like the stage has been set, you know. So I lie down on the bed. She, uh, you know, kind of ambled up and got between my legs and um, started giving me a blowjob. Um, some quick details about my penis. Um, <laughs> my penis is a lot like Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, not huge by any means, but putting forth uh, really excellent work <laughs> in a lot of low profile roles. <laughs> and is like very, is well respected despite a kind of a reputation for unreliability and <laughs> quirkiness. You like, you don't always know what you're gonna get. So, all right, so anyway, she, she went to work. I was, res I was responding well. I started to get hard, and she was giving me a blowjob. Very gently, slowly, great stuff. Uh, velvety, to use a, a cheese term. <laughs> and so, uh, th but, but this, this very slow, sensual part only lasted like, I, I don't know, like 20 seconds. She, and then immediately, as if she really wanted to get this over with, she just went full throttle, like really kind of monotonously, violently, you know, whacking away. And I don't like that, you know. <laughs> so I start to get flaccid again, which makes her just try even harder and more violently. Like she's just like trying to unclog something, like a plunger. <laughs> I don't know how, what you would, like a, I don't know, start a lawnmower. <laughs> so anyway, I had to say something. I was like, you need to slow down. And she got very uh, huffy, and uh, it almost ended right there, but uh, uh, she was like, well, I make the rules, and this is my, you know. And, hmm. So finally, uh, you know, I, I got the, I, I want to condense the, the very end here, but she, uh, I basically had to assist her for the final project to, you know, be completed and <laughs> for, for it to air. Uh, so... <laughs> so I basically like she kind of did some token assistance with her mouth and I kind of just finished things off with my hand I never really fully regained rigidity uh, and it, uh, at the end of it it was just kind of like you know when there's 
barely any ketchup left in a ketchup bottle. And it's just, you know. Uh, better get the waiter. There's no more, you know. I'm not going to eat this burger. But, all right, so here's, the, here's where it gets weird. Uh, she... I come in her mouth, and then any any semen that doesn't get in her mouth, she then she also she sucks up off of me, so she's got all of it in her mouth. Mm. And then she's like, mm. like you have to leave now. She and but she never spits it out or or swallows it. And so the last thing I saw as I like, hurriedly putting my clothes on, and she wouldn't even let me put my shoes on. I had to do that out in the hall. She just kind of shooed me out the door. So the last thing I see as she shuts the door behind me is her puffy-cheeked with my semen in her mouth. So then I went downstairs and I saw Anchorman. Uh, that's the story. I uh, will let you draw your own conclusions as to what that was all about. Thank you. and pour myself a drink. 
That was the godfather of good radio, Mr. Joe Frank. Mentor to Ira Glass. Big inspiration to a good friend of ours, Mr. Benjamin Walker, another great radio artist. You can get a ton of great programming from Joe at joefrank.com, and I highly recommend it. Before that, Mad Mix Mustang. Put Nazi Osborne on top of Aha. And I I don't think I've ever heard Ozzy sounding so good as when he's on top of Aha. This is Bee versus Moth behind me now, and they are phenomenal. Helping us shift into a deeper mood here for this next story. This is David Crabb. He is a producer of this show. Hugely talented guy. Uh, He also hosts his own show called Ask Me. In the East Village, it's also a a podcast. So check out Ask Me Stories as well. We call this one, Why Can't We Be Friends? was a 16-year-old goth kid in San Antonio, Texas. Yeah, is that for goth or San Antonio? Um, I wore combat boots. I wore a long-sleeved paisley shirt buttoned to the top, sometimes with a brooch, sometimes without. I had long hair that I kept shaved underneath trying to emulate the lead singer of Depeche Mode, but because I had a bunch of calyx, I looked more like a young, mannish Patty Duke. Um, All of my friends were freaks and weirdos that wore safety pins as face jewelry, and I liked them. I loved it. I was happy. And then, in the middle of my sophomore year, my mother tells me that she's getting remarried. And we are moving to a little town called Seguin, Texas. Yeah. (laughs) Seguin made San Antonio look like freaking Times Square, New York City. It was a hellhole, and I hated it. I started school there, and the kids, I was so crazy looking and weird, the kids called me RuPaul. I don't really get the connection. Um, I wasn't a seven-foot-tall drag queen that wore a cat suit to class, but it worked for them. So I tried to meet the alternative kids, but they were all kind of like alt-light. Like they weren't as cool or edgy as my friends that I dropped acid with in San Antonio. Times Square, New York City, ah! Um, so I sort of withdrew for a while. And eventually, uh, one of the few friends that I, I made said, hey, um, we're going to this party tonight in New Braunfels. Do you want to go? And I was like, sure. And New Braunfels was a slightly bigger town, like 15 minutes away. So I got all done up, put my hair in a ponytail, light dusting of powder on the face. <laughs> I, I, I was one of those. Um, I put on my um, Susie and the Banshees t-shirt, which was my favorite t-shirt, and we went there. So we drive to New Braunfels, and we pull up to this... I think it was a double-wide trailer at one point, but somewhere along the way they lost half of it, and they sort of affixed a different trailer entirely in its place, and then built a deck, and then ran out of room, so they literally have a second story that was a different trailer. It was like, it was like a white trash MC Escher sort of painting. So we go inside, and it's just blaring music. And I look around, and they're freaks, but They're not freaks like I know. These freaks are all male. These freaks are all a little bit aggressive. Oh shit, these freaks are all skinheads. So I'm totally having a one of these things is not like the other moment. And I'm looking around and all their beady little skinhead eyes are on me and there's some clenching jaws and I'm like, I'm I'm sweating. So, so I look, to my friend for support, he's gone. So I just run to the patio. Uh, and nervously, I take out my Benson and Hedges Ultralight 100s because, because Seguin didn't have cloves. It was too edgy and crazy. So I'm standing on the patio trying to light my cigarette and all of a sudden, out of the darkness, this like hand comes with a Zippo. Gotcha. 
It's like a noir movie. It was really bizarre. And I look, and the hand is connected to this, like, huge, husky, brutish, like, 17-year-old skinhead with this, like, baby, baby, baby face and these huge, chubby cheeks. He's like a giant toddler skinhead, kind of. <laughs> and I introduce myself, and he says, I'm Zach. Where are you from? I've never seen you. He said, oh, I, I'm, I'm from Seguin. He's like, <laughs> that's that town with the biggest walnut in the country, isn't it? And I'm like, yes, it's the town. And it was. They actually had the biggest walnut in the country. And it was on, it was, this town was awful. It, it, they kept it on a pedestal outside of the courthouse. And it was all dinged up because in the summertime, kids would get bored and they'd go down there and shoot at it with their BB guns. And you could clearly tell it was made of cement. Um, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's again. He's like, oh, yeah, you, you guys got that, uh, that dumb uh, bullfighter mascot. I'm like, yes, that's us. We had a matador as a mascot, and oftentimes at away games, because no one could pronounce Seguin, we were often threateningly introduced as the sequined matadors, <laughs> which was never really very threatening to anyone. And then he looks at me and he says, um, your hair's kind of flipping out there. You look like that chick from Delight. And then I had that moment. I knew it was funny, but I had that moment. I was like, this is when I get punched in the face and called a faggot. But I laughed, and he laughed. And we both laughed. We ended up on that porch talking for three hours. He saw my shirt and he was like, I like Susie Sue. And then we started talking about music and punk music and movies and our crappy towns and our high school friends and our strange dads. And as we're having this conversation, just laughing our asses off, becoming friends, every person at the party, every goth chick and hippie dude and skinhead weirdo comes out and they all talk to Zach. Zach is like the mayor of freaks in New Braunfels. They all know him. So, in the weeks after this, we really become fast friends. And because he doesn't live in my town, I just wait for the weekend so I can drive to New Braunfels and hang out with Zach. And I'm an only child, so I think he really was sort of fulfilling also like a real brother for me. And um, we would have the most awesome time. I would go over there and we had our ritual. We each had like diamond shamrock to-go koozies and his was filled with Jameson and Coke and mine was Bacardi and Diet Coke. And <laughs> And, and, and we would go to whatever, like, you know, freak party we were going to, and he would be so nice and introduce me to everyone. Half of them, of course, looked at me like, with the jaw, like they just couldn't, ooh, they wanted to deck me. But the other half of them were pretty cool. So it was a very weird relationship where I was sort of going everywhere with my bodyguard. <laughs> As time went on, though, you know, I was thinking about the fact that, like, this guy's a skinhead. And finally, I had to say, you know, you're a skinhead. And he said, dude, I'm not a bigot. I'm a sharp. I said, you're a what? A skinhead against racial prejudice. A sharp. Uh, I, has anyone ever heard of it? <laughs> yes. Okay, it did. I thought just like 15 boys in New Braunfels made it up. I've never. Um, and, I, and then he went on this long thing about his manifesto, about like, you know, uh, we take the tools of the enemy, the way they dress and the way they act, and we use it against them to make a subversive statement about racism. It went on and on, and I just think, I, I think that they think skinheads look cool, but they didn't want to be bigots is kind of the way it worked out. Um, and then he explained like the finer points of it, because it was really complex. So, skins wear white laces for white power. Sharps, we wear multicolored laces. Uh, skins, straight-laced. Sharps will smoke pot, drink, huff. Skins look for fights. Sharps only fight if fought with. <laughs> they were basically like the hippies of punks is kind of how it was working out. So we were fast friends and it was awesome and then finally summer came which was great because I could Basically, I moved to New Braunfels. Like, I just stayed in New Braunfels. His sisters were awesome. His mom, like, kind of became like my summer mom. You know what I mean? She'd make us breakfast, and it was just so much fun. And it really was that way that you're friends with someone when you're that age. And it feels like you're falling in love. It's not romantic, it's not about sex, but you just think this is the most awesome, coolest person in the world. And if you don't see them at every possible moment, you might die. And that's kind of what being friends with Zach was like. And we would go to parties together, and he would, you know, do the introductions. And then we would just, like, sit on the kitchen counter, and it was like everything else in the room just kind of, like, faded and turned down. We would sit there with our cocktails from our weird gas station to-go koozies and just have the most awesome time. So the whole summer, it was this endless summer, and as the end of summer was drawing to a close, we were leaving a party, and he said, Hey, uh, gotta make a pit stop. And I was like, okay, fine. So... He drove through this little grove of trees and he pulled up by this little riverbed and there were other cars already parked there, all with their headlights kind of facing in. 
And he said, I'll be right back. And he got out, and the headlights were all facing a group of like 10 skinheads or sharps. And they were marching around this little baby skinhead, this little 14-year-old zit-covered boy. And they were basically kind of like taunting him and pushing him and calling him names. And a guy even spit on him. And I was sitting there in the car drinking my like Diet Coke and Bacardi, literally listening to the cassette erasure, The Innocence. <laughs> Watching this like insane display of like masculinity. And finally, this little kid, he fought back. And I guess he knew that he couldn't hit one, but he did this thing that I like to call the sprinkler method, where he finally just went, <laughs> And they pounced on him. And in five seconds, he just disappeared under this mass of rage. I was sitting there, and finally, he popped up. And all of a sudden, it was like a love fest. They were patting him on the back and rubbing his head. What I had seen was a beat-in. It was basically like a rite of passage. The kid's eye is already swollen, his lip is bleeding, and they come back to the car, and as they near the car, Matt, one of the sharps, he sees me. And he says to Zach, he's like, why the fuck is he here? And Zach says, we're leaving, we're leaving. He's like, no, no, why don't we beat him in? Why don't we beat in this faggot? And all of a sudden I realize I'm surrounded by like a dozen skinheads. And they are ready to pounce, because that was just like practice. They couldn't really beat him up, but they could really beat me up. And as Matt comes towards the passenger side door, Zach kind of slips between us and he says, he's off limits, which I've always thought was so weird. I've, all of a sudden was like, I was like a fine Southern belle having my, my honor defended. <laughs> and as I'm thinking that literally playing, blaring from the car speakers is, oh, l'amour, what's a boy you're not supposed to do? <laughs> Zach settles it. And finally, they, 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 give up, they give up, and Zach gets in the car, and we drive back to his place. And, and as we're driving, we just, we don't talk. Like, something has changed, and I feel like we both knew it had changed. And seeing him like that, like with his fist raised, his teeth clenched, hitting someone was just, it was strange, it was weird, it was, it was bad. And I think he knew that I, I felt that way about it. So we got back to his place, and we went to sleep. We didn't talk. The next morning, I woke up on the bedroom floor, and... It was before his mom was up, or his sisters, or him, and I just got in my car and I left. And over the next weeks, we, we didn't talk. And all of a sudden, all these kids in Seguin that seemed so boring, seemed so sweet and safe and nice. And I ended up making a lot of really amazing friends that I still have to this day. But I never talked to Zach again. It was probably about four years later, and I was a sophomore in college in San Marcos, which was sort of a town that made a triangle with Seguin and New Braunfels. I went to this party someone was having at their house, and it was a friend that I had known for like two years at that point. And I walked in the door, and the first thing on the couch in front of me is Zach. And he looks at me and he says, dude! And he gives me this huge bear hug, and we just start talking. And you know, people say, it's like not a day had passed. It really was like not a day had passed. And as we sat there on the couch and talked, like all my friends, all these people I'd known for like two years at this point, they all just kind of like faded into the background, like all those people had when I was like 16. And we just had the most wonderful time together and it was over and we said, you know, we've got to talk, you know, we've got to stay in touch. And, and I think we knew that we both meant it. A few days later, uh, Zach was driving on 1604, which is a stretch of highway around San Antonio that's really, really dark. He lost control of his car and it flipped and it bashed into the sidewall upside down. He survived the initial accident and he was hanging upside down for a really long time, probably disoriented because of the flow of blood to his head. When he finally bashed open the door, he fell in front of an oncoming truck and he was killed instantly. A few days later, I went to the funeral and um, there were hundreds of people there. There was like well over like 200 people there. And as I'm walking up, I get close to this tent they had set up because it was raining. And I see his mom, my summer mom. <laughs> And I walk up, and her face lights up, and I hug her, and I think of all the stuff I want to say about how much your son loved you and how great you were to me, but all I say while nestled into, nestled into her hair is, you smell so good. <laughs> I don't know why. And I look around, and I recognize all these kids. They were all this collection of freaks, and they were sort of like, it was sort of like Zach and I. We both kind of like dialed down to zero. They were still freaks, but they were a little more pedestrian, you know? And I looked out at them and I realized that even though our friendship was really special, Zach treated everyone that openly and he didn't judge anyone. And that's why he was indeed the mayor of the freaks, you know? 
And I think he's the reason why to this day when I'm walking down the street and I see some kid, snot-nosed punk with a shaved head and little skinny suspenders and boots, I know all the things that I'm supposed to think, but the first thing I think is, hmm, maybe we could be friends. Thank you. This is Risk, a beautiful song there by the Spies called Start a War. And this is something by this guy called Spontaneous on YouTube. He is making this music only with wine glasses. You can actually hear him pouring water around and placing glasses at different parts of the table. Well, we only have one lady on the show today, but she brings a lot of lady. The outrageous Ms. Sarah Barron is the author of the very, very celebrated book, People Are Unappealing. She's got critics comparing her to David Sedaris, for crying out loud. Here she is with a story we call Mama's Boy. I live in this neighborhood of Brooklyn that you may know. It's called Bushwick. Yes, it is very cool. Um, I totally live there because I like it and not because I'm very poor even though I'm in my 30s now. Um, in a ways, I live out there. I've lived out there for a little over three years at this point. About a block or so from my apartment, there's this restaurant slash kind of bar place that I go all the time. So it's like one of the only places that's around. And there was an employee there who is named Brian. And there are a couple of relevant pieces of information about Brian for the sake of this story. Number one, he's in a band. If you can possibly believe that. He lives in Bushwick, he waits tables, he's in a band. And um, number two, and really the crux of it, is that he is insanely attractive. It is weird how handsome this man is. And what I mean by that is it's like if I go to a movie, or I'm looking at a fashion magazine, I'm like expecting a certain level of attractiveness. But if I go into like a restaurant in Bushwick, this man is so attractive, it's like very hard to understand. You're like, I don't get what's happening to me right now. And I see him, like, you know, I see him at the restaurant all the time. I see him on the street in the neighborhood, whatever. And he is a literal head turner. Like you can literally see women being like, whoa, because it's that noteworthy, all right? So this is the level of attractiveness that we're discussing. P.S. Has anybody seen these new ads that are on the subway right now for like um, Uniqlo and they're like heat clothing and they have like Charlize Theron or whomever and also Orlando Bloom, anybody? Fine, I'm glad I included that. The point is, is that this guy looks, Orlando Bloom is looking phenomenally hot, especially in th these ads and this is what the dude looks like, okay? On the same page, yes? That's what we're dealing with, fine. So all this being said, Approximately six months ago, I endure a breakup. I know, and those things are always like so shitty. 
And so I'm in that very unoriginal sort of like post-breakup zone where you're like, oh, I'm going to really use this time to like focus on me right now. And I'm just going to like, I'm going to get to the gym every day and I'm going to read all these books or whatever. But then on an actual night-to-night basis, you're like, is there any stranger who would like to have the intercourse? Any stranger who would like to booze it up and have the intercourse of moi, d'accord. So anyway, I'm like in that zone very generally, but on this one very specific Sunday night and like Sundays are the worst post-breakup, all right? I'm like in a very unattractive sweatpant ensemble and there's like a hair acne glasses thing happening and I'm like you gotta pull it together this isn't happening this isn't helping where you're at emotionally and so I could go to the gym but I don't want to do that so I'm like I'll just put on the cute outfit a little eyeliner and go to the restaurant bar I'm not giving you the name for specific reasons obviously I'll just go there have a glass of wine do all my reading there and you'll like feel better about yourself when the evening is over fine so that's what I do and it's one of those very bizarrely wonderful evenings it's bizarre for me anyway we're like you have a mission and it actually works do you know what i mean so i go in and i show up at the restaurant and brian's working and it is as though i have shown up with like a sign on my chest that says just went through a breakup some man flirt with me to up the level of my self-esteem you know what i mean and brian saw it and was like done all right so i walk in and literally the body language that i get and i'll have to say before i go any further his whole deal is an extremely attractive human on the planet is that he's unbelievably flirtatious with everybody. So I get it, okay? I get that mama's not the special person in this story, but still, it feels good, right? I'm having a bad night and this gorgeous man is flirting. It feels amazing, right? So I walk in and he literally is like this. Oh, Sarah B, be still my heart. Like, that's what he says. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. You know? And he says that. And he's like, oh my God, you look amazing. Like, what are you doing? Going to the gym? I'm like, no, just a lot of television and masturbation. What do you want to, you know? Which I'll also mention, have you guys seen the movie? Please tell me that you've seen this movie. Waiting for Guffman, yes? Please. Okay. So you know Catherine O'Hara in that movie? You know how there's that one part where she's in the play within the movie and she's like, these mountains are a sight for these weary eyes, right? That is how I talk to Brian whenever I talk to him. Because he's so handsome that I have anxiety all the time. So he's like, hey, what's up? I'm like, not a lot, Brian. What is up with you? You know, whatever. So that's sort of how I respond. So it's great. And he's like, sit down, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I will, whatever. And I do. And I have my couple of glasses of wine and he flirts and it's like so perfect. And I am so pathetically but genuinely grateful for the entire interaction. Okay. So I get up to leave and I pack everything up, everything, myself and my book. And, um, and, I, and I'm like, bye, nice seeing you. And, um, and he's like, oh, hey, where are you going? And I was like, oh, you know, I gotta get home and get up in the morning, which I don't. I don't ever really have to get up in the morning, but that's what people say to each other. Um, so I say that, he's like, oh, well, listen, like, if I'm not being too forward, can I, uh, can I get your number? Like, you know, we're all, uh, I know, <laughs> I know, best moment of all time for any human on the planet ever. So he's like, can I get your number? You know, we see each other here all the time, but I'm always working and I feel like we should, you know, have a proper conversation. What? I'm sorry, no problem. So I virtually like vomit my phone number onto this man. I'm like, yes, whatever, I have no plans ever. And so as it happens, we make this plan for the very next night to get a glass of wine. And as perhaps you can imagine, I leave the, uh, I leave the restaurant and I'm like on cloud nine. On the other hand, I am a quasi-moron, not a total moron. So there's this part of me going, something's not right. Something's not right here. I'm not trying to like be too, like, can a person fish for a compliment if they're on stage? Do you know what I mean? Probably not. But the point is, is I'm not being like, I don't know, he's just, he's so hot, but he's interested in me. I really don't understand, you know. But I really mean it. I was like, if you saw me and Orlando Bloom down, walking down the street together, you'd be like, what's going on with that situation? You know what I mean? Good for her, but what's happening for him emotionally that he's making this choice? that's happening but then on the other other hand there's this other sort of story going through my mind now do you guys also remember like 15 ish years ago Hugh Grant was like very famous and he was dating Elizabeth Hurley who was like the world's most beautiful woman but then he got caught in a car nailing like prostitutes anybody remember this story and I was thinking about that and I was like people make weird choices sexually it happens. Maybe 2010 is the year Sarah Barron gets hers, and Brooklyn's hottest man happens to like flat-chested, acne-ridden redheads. I don't know. 
who talk like this? I don't know. So these are all the questions and of course all the nervousness and all the excitement. So we go out the next day and it's like amazing and ridiculous the way everything always is, you know. So he's like, um, as it turns out, as we get to know each other better over the wine, it turns out that Brian is not only in a band, he's also studying the craft of acting and he likes to paint, which we all know means he's really good at all of those things. So he's like talking about that and then he also, he's very tattooed and don't get me wrong, mama enjoys a tattoo, okay? But what I don't enjoy is a gentleman explaining to me why he got a tattoo if I haven't asked him, no gracias, I don't wanna know. So he's like, you know, in 02, this, and I'm like, ugh. Normally, a gentleman on a date wants to talk about his craft and his tattoos and I shut down emotionally, vaginally, the works, whatevs, no gracias. But because he's so handsome, I'm like, oh, is that why you got the tattoo? No, more about acting, more about acting, please. Even though you're 28 and going to launch the career now, I'm sure that's gonna go great, you know? So this is sort of what's happening on this particular date. And then what starts to happen over the course of the next several weeks is the most ambiguous relationship dynamic of my entire life, by which I mean we are seemingly very obviously dating each other and very obviously all he wants is to be friends with me. Here's what I mean, here's my evidence. Number one, I hear from him almost every day. I'm not kidding. Like from the time he's like, can I give you, uh, will you give me your phone number and I have the best moment of my entire life. I hear from him like every other day, maybe it's a text, whatever, but there's always some contact. We're seeing each other like a couple of times a week. You know, he'll be like, oh, Sunday was so fun. What are you up to Wednesday? I'm like, absolutely nothing, obviously. <laughs> evidence number two, he almost always pays right? Evidence number three, we live very near each other and so very sweetly he always like walks me back to my apartment. Dating, right? <laughs> and yet nothing physical is happening. And I don't mean like you know nothing physical is happening but I'm sort of like getting a vibe and we're both away. No, it's like it's not happening and I'm explaining this to my friends and they're like maybe he's really shy and I was like no. This man has a swagger and he is too handsome to be shy and I know that sounds like an offensive generalization but seriously like I've watched the flirtation there's no way that's the issue and then one of my friends was like do you think it's a penis issue? And I said let me tell you something the man is a hipster he wears some very tight jeans I've seen the outline no. <laughs> It's actually disgusting. I know that it is, but there was just one day I was like, that's the outline of the penis, and it looks very normal to me, so that's not the issue, whatever. <laughs> so it's not a penis problem. I don't think it's a, like, uh, he's taking his time. And I was like, does he just want to be friends with me? You know, like, does he want to walk me home and be friends? Which I understand is a thing that happens. There are women who have, like, a lot of guy friends, but I'm not that way. If I see a woman, I'm like, I'd like to be friends with you. If I see a man and I like him, I'm like, we should have the intercourse. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's my general approach. So maybe this happens, but not to me. I just don't think that that's what I project. So these are the questions. We've been seeing each other as friends. I don't know what's happening. P.S. I keep waiting because I'm like, Sarah, do you enjoy listening to things about his tattoos? No, I don't. But the thing is, is that maybe if I hold out, maybe it's possible. I know how pathetic this is about to sound, so just know that. But I was like, maybe, maybe he like really wants to wait because he really feels something special for you. I know, it's sad, whatever. You can be uncomfortable right now, it's fine. That's why I'm holding out, despite the conversations about the tattoos and the artistry, whatever. So this has been going on for like ballpark two, three weeks. And he and I are out and we're talking about him, because that's what we always talk about. And, um, and he's, you know, he's specifically talking about like how, you know, being an artist is so tough and like waiting tables is such a tough way to make a dollar and all this stuff. And I say as a joke, and it's not particularly clever or funny, I get it, whatever, but I say it because I get nervous around him, whatever. I'm like, oh, you know what we should do? You and I, two-person business, we need to corner the as-of-yet untapped market on like hipster prostitutes. I get it, it's not that funny, but whatever. I say it, and I'm like, you know, like, you take the girls, I'll take the guys, and we'll be like, prostitutes who are hipsters in the Williamsburg area. Ha, 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 ha. And Brian, like, leans forward in the chair, and he's like, listen, obviously I can tell that you're being funny right now, but I'm, you know, I'm just putting it out there that that's something that I would be very open to. And you know when you have those moments in your life where you're like, you have given me surprising information. I'm gonna act like it's not surprising at all. So I was like, oh really? 
have you had sex for money before? Like, as though I'm like, could you go to the bank? I'm like, have you had sex for money? Because that's very normal to me. And he said, he's like, well, I haven't had sex for money, but I've had sex for, I've had sex for vacations, I've had sex for clothing, and I've had sex for meals. I was like, sex for meals is the funniest thing I've ever heard, but that's fine, anyway. I've had sex for uh, vacations, sex for clothing, sex for meals, but I've never actually had sex for like, cold hard cash because that's the thing that people say to each other in regular conversation anyway it's like but i've never had sex for cold hard cash and i'm just saying it's sort of like you know seems like kind of a crazy adventure you know sort of like an experience that i feel like i'd like to have before i die again feel like i cannot say i disagree with that statement so i don't know this happens to me where it's like because you cannot express yourself in an authentic way, as my therapist would say, what you end up doing instead is you say the antithesis of how you're actually feeling. So he's like, you know, it just seems like a really fascinating experience. So what I said was, oh yeah, that's cool. <laughs> With all due respect to the prostitutes here this evening, I don't think it's cool. Like, I don't think it's cool for some dude to be like, yeah, it's just kind of a thing I want to try. No, I don't think it's cool, but it's what I say. So I say, I think that's cool. And in the way that is very sad, but funny, like so much of life, um, he sort of like, this look of almost relaxation overtakes Brian, and he sort of has this big, beautiful smile, and he's like, oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that, because you come across as someone who's like, super chill, and like, open-minded, which P.S., if someone were to say, Sarah Barron, what two adjectives do you think apply to you the least? I'd be like, chill and open-minded. I am the single most judgmental, manic person that I personally know. But he says this, and uh, you know, and he's like, you just seem chill and open-minded, and as I've been really thinking about the pursuit of this project, um, it occurred to me that sort of what I need to be my in is like a really cool young female pimp. And I was like, oh man, I bet Sarah B's the girl. Correcticus. So that was when I was like, and we are finished at this coffee shop this afternoon because, and I've thought about this and again, analyzed it with my therapist. And I was like, why is that the breaking moment, right? Like, why does she hang on when he's like, I want to have sex for money. It seems like an adventure. No problem. Let's do a prostitution company. And I think the reason that this was my breaking point was because it was like the implication of me. It's like, if you want to go have sex for money, you go do your thing. But mama doesn't want to know that she's giving off a pimp vibe, okay? <laughs> Number two, it was the confirmation that in fact, does a man that's attractive want to have the intercourse? He does not, in which case mama's gotta go. Do you know what I mean? Mama logged a lot of hours hearing about your tattoo. If we're not gonna do it, no P in the V, mama's gotta go, all right? <laughs> so I say, I'm like, oh, Brian, you know, thank you. <laughs> because ultimately I'm very well-mannered. Um, I was like, Brian, thank you. That is very flattering, but I don't, you know, I don't think I'm the girl for the job. He's like, oh, well. That's too bad. I mean, I, like I said, I thought you'd kind of be good at it. And, you know, you're always going on about how you're Jewish. Now press pause. I'm Jewish. I don't always go on about it. It comes up. Occasionally I mention it. Apparently I did to Brian. So he could, he's like, you know, you're always going on about how you're Jewish. I figured you'd make like a really good manager. I'm like, let's just say Jew love money. Jews love money. That's what you want to say. So just say Jews love money and let's get the, get the F out of here, okay? So I was like, ah, uh, well, again, Thank you. <laughs> Alas, I don't think I'm the right lady for the job. So whatever, so the conversation continues to wrap up in whatever awkward way it does. And I'm like, you know, you know that moment, single people in the crowd were like, oh, I'm not having sex, I have to leave. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's why I was in it. So if I'm not gonna win it, then I got to go. So that's sort of where I'm at. So I leave, confirmation, affirmed, Sarah's not having sex with the Orlando Bloom look like. And I leave and I'm walking home and I'm like, that's what you get for thinking that you could have possibly achieved this. Approximately a half an hour later, my cell phone goes off with a text message from Brian. And in conclusion this evening, I'd like to read that to you. Oh, I know, it's exciting. Hold on, this bra is not fitting well. Despite what they told me at the expensive lingerie store that it would, but it didn't. Too much information? Maybe. But don't you feel like it's less awkward than if I fixed my bra and didn't say something about it? That's my general approach. Okay. Brian texts me. P.S. There's a lot happening in this text message, so let's just all acknowledge that it's all psychotic because I need to have the momentum of it. Okay. Yo, yo. Great chatty this afternoon, but seriously, we talked about some heavy shit, you know? Money shit, etc. I'm like, etc. like how you want to be a prostitute and are vaguely anti-Semitic, etc. 
basically, I was hoping you'd do me a solid, friend, and keep it all to yourself. I'm like, no problem, friend. I'll totally be keeping that to myself. <laughs> Which I did because his name isn't Brian. Thank you and good evening. and claw by the Ets. They are so cool. This was Risk. I'm Kevin Allison. Our live show producers are Michelle Walson and Madison Perry. Our episode editors are Mike Cades and David Crabb. Our associate producers are Nina Moses, Chris Castiglione, Jackie Jennings, Catherine Green, and Paul Gale. And don't forget what this lady once said about Risk. Hi. Hi, this is Madonna. What do you think you're doing? Just what the fuck do you think you're doing? You guys, I just want to say fuck, 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 fuck Madonna. What the fuck do you think Madonna is doing? What the fuck do you think you're doing? Yeah! What the fuck do you think this is Madonna? Yeah! I just think, what the fuck, what the fuck, just fuck it. I just want to say what the fuck, you guys. I just want to say to you guys, what the fuck.